Hi, this is Claire in the Art of Life podcast. Welcome, welcome, beautiful soul friend. I'm going to speak today about midwinter, midwinter fest, Christmas. There's an event being organised by some neighbours and myself um, involved in, in Christmasing up the, the couple of streets around where I live. Um, filling them with lights and opening the doors of some of the old stables, setting up presepe, nativity scenes, um, some theatre, food and drink and traditional things. And the guys who are setting it up uh, asked me to contribute something Scottish to it and to try and involve the other foreigners and get them to bring some cultural exchange, some um, stories or or traditional foods or like a drink or or something from a song from their own culture so the americans seem pretty shy about that <laughs> and and i i am actually also very shy about it but i do know my duty as someone who has been accepted into this community to exchange not not exchange in a transactional way but interweave inter Inter give like to give freely, especially when asked, of my energy, my time, my culture, um, my stories, my um, contributions, like to weave it in somehow. But I did really struggle in my mind. I was really thinking, oh, I want to do something that's like unquestionably Scottish and <clears throat> that's definitive in a way of our traditions and even trying to do a tiny bit of internet searching just did my head, head in oh come and buy it on amazon like fuck, uh, what the actual is is that all about eh you can't even ask a fucking question about your own cu culture but getting amazon's thrown at you <clears throat> so i looked into my own energy and collective consciousness um, plug-in <laughs> that I have and I felt into my own past and thought about actually yeah I, I have an enrichment of story from my childhood and actually telling it uh, telling the stories in Italian which I, I published a podcast yesterday um, on the decentralized platform and sent it round to a few friends who won't be able to Italian friends who won't be able to make it um, to this event this weekend it's much easier to talk in a foreign language about where I grew up and also to just naturally find the meaning in the thing, in the meaning in the story, um, possibly in a in the sense that I have a very simple life here, a very natural and simple life, which is very reminiscent, uh, very resonates very much with how I grew up how we grew up, uh, my siblings and I and my parents when we when they first came to the island and the the subsequent years before they split up and we moved out and moved back in and had all the messing around with um step parents and so on. But the the power and simplicity of the the community rituals that we participated in from being small were incredible, even though we were incomers not ourselves as children we were we were spent all of our life on the island as children and we were of the island of the land of the elements um 
but my parents being from the mainland and from the city uh, and my mum having been brought up in an English household it, it did mean that we got a good old <laughs> interweaving of cultures and that is really interesting in itself but also it's quite hard to tie down what was actually the tradition and and then I, I started to think about how how blessed we've been how blessed we've been to not have been tangled up in any religion or um contrived rituals or overly overly forced behaviours or scenarios that that nowadays are, are very normalised, very sterilised versions of traditions. Like I was just looking into the Yule log and, and how a tradition was being revived up in the, the northern islands of Scotland. And it just, every story that I looked up, in fact, was all about a contrived, sugar-laden, trademarked recipe from one of the big factory food places or council-funded, government-funded um, activities which you know would be surrounded by St John's ambulance crew and folk in yellow reflective vests and kids being told not to poke each other with live fireworks or <laughs> get too close to the flames of the big bonfire and all the rest of it. And something that comes through all my stories is how, how free we were, how free we were. And it's hard actually to talk about that in English. It is hard to talk about it because all this feeling comes up and all this complexity of wanting to try and explain it or try and understand it and comprehend it, we're speaking a second language. Uh, and again, that's a very sore point about where our language went and how the language that we do speak, English, isn't fitting for the primal truth of what we grew up in and what we were as we grew up, the, the primal simplicity of it, and the beauty of it, the, the truth of it, of the elements, the land, the spirit of the place, the meaning, the deep meaning, the medicinal aspects of life in general then. So yeah, I was talking about a series of stories and it, it really was easier to tell a story um, without having the capacity with all these extra words to put in. And I'd really love to try that in English, but this is my third attempt now <laughs> to, to record and it's going to take me all day and all night probably if I don't just tie this down. So I'm going to talk around the stories um, rather than narrate from beginning to end each little story because it's yeah it's it's not it, it's just not possible for some reason with my anglified brain so um the first story i was talking about was the tradition of stealing the christmas tree which actually went the the story i just mentioned from the northern isles of scotland about the yule log that was a really interesting it's one of the few things that i actually managed to tie down on the internet fucking internet man just talking shite all the time when you know where are the true stories you know where's the actual recounting of people's real experience you know everything's all about the homogenized version and that really 
pisses me off. It really makes me angry that people think they have the authority to tell the stories, not having been there, to implement rituals and to control the ritual from a completely external place, from an office, from a, a centralised fucking bullshit uh, agenda when like the traditional the tradition of stealing the, the Christmas tree of course it's not stealing it's just taking from nature which if a big corporation has planted a shit ton of Christmas trees or, or fir trees across the hillside the wild hillside that belong to the people and belong to nature of course a living man may go and cut one of those trees down and take it into his house he's not going to like work for coin and sweat and labour doing something he hates to do so that he can go to a supermarket and buy it and spend lots of money on petrol in the car to go to the next village of course he's going to walk up the up the back with his axe and hack down a tree damn right he should and this was the tradition that they were talking about. They were trying to re-implement the tradition of the Yule log, which is a tug of war with a big giant log in the northern islands of Scotland. Um, I'm from the southwest island of Arran. And um, there was something about it had been banned in the 1930s because people were stealing each other's trees and... <laughs> And folk would be sleeping outside in the middle of the winter in northern Scotland, you know, a really wild, wild place, wild winter place. And people were sleeping outside under their trees to stop them from getting stolen. So fair dues on the islands, they have been de detreed, uh, deforested uh, very aggressively over the years by folk out of kilter with the environment. So, yeah, there there would be a good point of banning something like that but at the same time um the folk the young folk at that time the young men <clears throat> didn't want to accept a gifted log didn't want a log sanctioned and given to them the whole point of it was going out to a wild place and getting a tree and the stealing was part of it like being able to take it in a way that is free, take it in a way that it's not, you're not beholden to pay somebody coin, which means you have to go and do something conventional like in order to get the coin to give to them. And that that transaction is a completely different thing than a living person going to a tree, a natural tree and taking it from nature, <clears throat> which ultimately all the, all the discussion about fences and laws and commercial law and trespassing and blah 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 is nothing it means absolutely nothing the natural law of a living woman or a living man going into nature and taking what they need is god's law and that's all there is to it particularly i would say <clears throat> in the situation where we lived where um there had been a massive forest planted up behind high Corrie. Uh, in the 80s, I think 84, 82 to 84 or so, a massive strip of land effectively cutting off the, the village from the mountain. Just the most extraordinary behaviour by corporations of these long-term investments of planting very poor quality trees that would be used for paper eventually, be harvested and the, the whole 
uh, hillside will be completely nude and acidified by these trees <clears throat> and th they'll just get taken off the island and the wealth won't go to the people, the wealth won't go back into the land, the trees won't be replanted or maybe they will, I think there was some something about that getting replanted with broadleaf woodland. But in the meantime, those trees are still there. They've been there since I was wee. And when they first went up and grew big enough, it it was certainly a tradition in our in our house <clears throat> to go up and, and take a tree for a Christmas tree. Beautiful, beautiful pines too. Very beautiful pines. Very, you know, you could search around and get the most perfectly formed one and, and have it in the house and it would be... And it would be... Uh, adding a dimension to the house, you know, very different from a a pop-up um, artificial tree, very different from, even from a, a tree perhaps uh, grown on a tree farm in the mainland. <laughs> um, there's something about it coming from nearby, coming from the actual land, you know, the actual elemental reality of, directly behind our house. But up on the wilds of the hill, the wild exposed hill, my dad would go up under cover of darkness when nobody else would be out in the hill apart from other people stealing Christmas trees maybe. And then um, he'd drag it down, you know, come, go the back way, not the not the main road that they made to get up to the, the European funded water tank and the and the corporation forest. The the back way, you know, down the, the deer tracks, the tiny little thin tracks which are very hard to navigate even during daytime but yeah the the fact of having a wild living tree in the house was something that was very very special it's medicinal the smell of pine the beautiful smell of pine what it does to cleanse the mind the heart the energy of the house the the beauty of that aromatherapy permeating all of us <laughs> alongside the the beautiful natural wood on the fire that would maybe be birch or rhododendron or oak if we we're lucky if something had fallen down beech um, either way very natural beautiful wood smoke that would be both um seeping just a little bit out the fireplace or or also coming in when anyone opened or shut the front door or the back door, coming in from the chimney because when it was so cold, the smoke would often, if it was cold and still, the smoke would fall down the way rather than rising up into the sky and we would often get it back in the house. So just a big old wild, messy business, having a, a cottage and getting habituated to it uh, back in the day. As I said, my, my parents both came from the mainland and from city existences <clears throat> and they learned everything from from the top, <laughs> from the beginning, uh, from scratch. So like my own life here, I've had 12 years in this medieval quarter house. It's taken a long time to really comprehend, really f deeply understand how the microclimates work, how the insects get in, um, the cycles of things, um, the the water movements, <laughs> the the different, uh, completely different, almost every inch of the wall having a different quality to it and how it's been patched up with cement and wood and etc. 
over the years, um, what works on the walls, what doesn't work on the walls. Uh, similarly, my parent, similarly, my parents uh, had bought the house in I think seventy one, or seventy two or so, and uh, no, yeah, seventy two or seventy three, I think. Whatever, whenever it was, I was just coming into being then, and we um we lived for some of the first months and years in the house in in a very very basic state where there was a roof over our head that was something um but we weren't always keeping the elements out um so when we did have the fire on and the christmas tree up with a little tiny chain of little colored lights on it it was really something that that felt like luxury and yeah bringing nature into the house and and somehow felt very meaningful in terms of us going outside and then coming back inside into the warmth, being able to brave the winter, being able to feel um, safe outside because we had a safe inside. That, that in itself is something very powerful that I think because we, we take for granted that we should have a lot of heating in our house and a, a fridge full and um, lots of excess a feast and lots of drink and richness in in midwinter I think we really miss the the beauty of of being outside in the elements and coming back in um so yeah the kind of things that we experienced as children in that house in a very cold bedroom where there wasn't a, it's now a living room with a big fire in it, a big uh, beautiful stove, uh, wood burning stove. But at that time it was split into two bedrooms, one for my wee brother and me, and one for my big brother. And we had these lovely windows uh, that were single, single pane glass, uh, old school windows. And every morning we would get up and it would be absolutely freezing literally and there would be these patterns on the window of the frost and I was saying in the Italian story that I was telling about this about how it really felt like a, a mystical experience a spiritual experience to see this elaborate perfection like how could that have been there and how did it disappear so quickly you know before lunchtime although the the sun was very low in the sky, but it did pass by that window <laughs> just briefly and, and melted the snow on it, the ice on it, rather. And my mum, I remember my mum telling me something, some weird sort of fobbing off the children story about Jack Frost. And I'm like, the hell is Jack Frost? What a ridiculous concept. This is obviously something to do with God and divine creation and magic and mysticism and you're telling me Jack Frost what the hell does that mean um so I think she had some sort of Enid Blyton story in her own head and she couldn't be bothered to explain, <laughs> explaining the chemistry of it or the the biology of it um but either way me and my wee brother certainly were in awe of this and I personally felt that this looking at this ice and the fern the details and the the sacred geometry of it almost like these almost like these uh, complex 
I don't even know how to describe it. Um, I'll I'll need to uh, do some research into <laughs> into um, the beautiful patterns of frost on windows. Either way, I remember very very distinctly the sun coming up and the the very bright crisp air, the light in the in in the southwest of Scotland is extraordinary. It's inspired many painters, and the light that that comes through in certain times of the year, like the light of the moon at night, on snow, on the mountains, on the ice, the sparkling of everything. Um, this window was already, you know, like much more exciting than a church window with the light shining through all the stained glass. It was already utterly spellbinding. But then the, then the sun lit it up and it was like just, you know, like we were in another dimension. I was in another dimension. And the idea that like, <laughs> some magical character off the TV or out of an Enid Blyton book made it, bing, Jack Frost came along and like sprayed it on or something. That was just, yeah, that was really, yeah, that was when I started to doubt the stories of my parents and the stories of my teachers. So, yeah, that's something I, I carried with me a long time and, and inspired me uh, deeply in the cells of my being for a long time. And I think even from them, from then, I knew that that's what, what I was interested in. I was interested in the mystical beauty of a thing that is then added to by the light coming through it and just becomes this this thing that is beyond incredible, like be incredibly, just unbelievable. <clears throat> um, and similarly, the beauty of... Um, The beauty of the simplicity of that and how it was a gift from God, a gift from nature, a gift from the elements. And how everything that I've studied around how we affect water and how we can actually imprint water. I really wonder about the co-creation at that time, you know. My mind opens up to that now in these moments where I'm starting to recognise. Again, this coming through me, this knowing that we are divine co-creators and what that is actually doing to the elements around us and what the elements are doing to us. Um, so yeah, another really beautiful thing that I was talking about in Italiano was the tradition of warming our feet in the oven. <laughs> we had a big old Rayburn stove in our kitchen, <clears throat> which which did everything. It heated heated water for the bath in the sink uh, when we were small and uh, had a warm oven and a cooler oven, still warm but cooler and my mum made bread, I remember she would get really angry when we opened the back door and kept going in and out, in and out um, <laughs> because it, it would change the, the heat of the oven, it would, the, the air would affect the, and cakes would fall or cakes or bread would rise or fall depending on um, if there was a blast of cold air coming in from the outside. Bless her. Oh, I must have driven her crazy. Well, we did. We did. So, um, but one of the, one of the most beautiful things, never mind give, getting given cake or, or sweeties or, or anything like that, candies or whatever, treats. There wasn't a great deal of that around when we were wee, 
but what there was um the the profound joy of being outside as long as we could possibly deal with it until even our welly boots our, our rubber boots would be have the water would have seeped down our waterproof trousers and somehow got into everything because we'd be rolling about in snow mud water crashing about in the undergrowth inside bushes up and down trees probably falling in the burn uh, the, the uh, brook the water the wee river beside the house which we call a burn um, so yeah we would eventually have to relent and recognise that our feet were about to fall off if we, <laughs> we didn't go inside and the joy of sitting in a probably a really busy kitchen where my mum would be trying to get a meal or Christmas dinner or something prepared and there'd be a, a wee us three feral children vying to get our feet into the oven and like arguing with each other and there would be a real thing about don't put them directly in there you have to take your wet socks and boots off and everything and get everything all lined up at the door get the newspaper in the boots to dry the boots out or go and put them by the fire through next door and then like let your feet let them get let them get up to room temperature first don't put them straight from freezing and blue directly into the oven my mum was had a real thing that we would get chill blains or something some similar uh, disease would come out the out the ether and attach itself to our feet um but yeah we were fine our little feet turning from blue to red to pink to regular little pale white feet again <laughs> um as they cooked slowly in the in the lower oven in the rayburn sitting on the sitting on the kitchen floor um taking up all the space in the kitchen it wasn't a big kitchen and um totally getting in the way my mum having to step over us probably to get from pans to sinks to table uh but yeah the the deliciousness of um, being immersed in the elements, like properly immersed, not just a little bit, you know, getting a bit of snow in your face or whatever, <laughs> um, holding your hands out outside of gloves. The proper full immersion of touching the elements with our whole bodies and being fully occupying our connectedness with all things outside, not not seeing trees as separate, seeing them as our friends or relatives even, um, not feeling that the landscape, you know, that you would stay to a path, but being so intimate with all of the landscape, climbing and rolling and somersaulting and cartwheeling and, and playing and struggling and constructing things, constructing things. It was very exciting when s snow... The rare occasions when snow did come that we would actually, it was such a great constructing material and, you know, instead of having to struggle with wood and try and get bushes to conform to the shapes that we wanted them to, <laughs> suddenly we had snow that you could make just any shape out of, basically. That was that was very exciting. But yeah, the fact of being fully immersed and then coming into the, the warmth of the house, the difference in those things, the difference, is being, the difference in being frozen to the bone really really cold and verging on going into shock <laughs> and coming back into the house just when you know you can't bear it anymore that that was an amazing thing an amazing freedom that I think it's it's really hard to explain to folk nowadays how important it is that children get exposed to that 
that they are actually they have the right equipment for being outside but they push the equipment as far as it can be pushed and they they allow their bodies to be challenged they allow their immune systems to be challenged and strengthened by being exposed very hard to explain that to folk who, who wrap their kids up in cotton wool nowadays and and um would never think to allow a toddler or a, a small child to be louping about in the dark outside. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, a great enrichment, um, the feet in the oven. So, um, talking of which, being fully immersed, the, I have a story of when my gran was meant to be coming up, probably for Christmas dinner or such like, and um, she was a wee bit late. Um, it was still daylight out, daylight outside, <clears throat> but daylight being very relative in the winter in the west coast of Scotland. Um, it was there was deep snow outside, and um, looked like it was going to snow again. And I was saying, I was really worried for Granny, and I was saying to my mum, "Oh, I should, I should go out." She'd go down and, and meet her in the road and hold her hand and make sure she's getting up the hill okay, you know, maybe pull her up the hill or something. Um, so I got all dressed up in my layers and and headed out into the snow. I went off down the shortcut, the, the footpath that comes out by the village hall, behind the village hall, because um, I just assumed that she would be coming up there. Didn't think from a minute... My granny being a, a city woman, essentially, and living down in the lower village, which is all along the road. The, the road um, is about a mile and a half long. The village is about a mile and a half long, along the main road. It's an asphalted road, a tarmacadamed road, and it's immediately next to the beach, the rocky beach, with all the interesting geology that people come from all over the country to study. Uh, beautiful sandstone swirls and shapes and glorious granites and pebbles and um, beautiful, beautiful beach. And so the road, the main road, uh, is connected to High Corry by a, a road track, a track. It used to be, back in the day, it was quite um, stony and rumbly. Uh, there might have been two strips of tarmacadam on it that helped uh, the machinery get up to build the water tank and plant the trees but um, I think it was quite a basic thing that the the two strips of tarmac would pretty much wash away in the winter <laughs> and crack away under the the ice and so on so either way the road track uh, I hadn't I didn't think for a minute to go down the road track because the road the the road to High Corrie with goes to the south first and then goes down. It's much longer and if you just got wee legs, I wouldn't have thought for a minute to go down there and I just assumed Granny would be coming up the shortcut. Why would you go on the main road? It's much further. So, and, and less beautiful. We loved our shortcut. It's really special. It's little woodlands and fields and under the cherry tree and over the wee burn and down the rocky, rocky bit and then the big sandstone steps at the bottom. I got halfway down the, the shortcut and um, like everything, there was a white out basically, <laughs> everything was white anyway, but when I got to the fields I was just absolutely lost because it started snowing again and I couldn't really see very far in front of me and I was kind of bent into the howling gale, the wind that was so strong and 
I found myself over like in much much deeper snow, a bit drifted snow, and started to think, oh shoot, um, this is actually dangerous. Like I can't. I'm really cold now, and it's I'm up to my chest in snow or whatever, up to my waist and my chest in snow, and this isn't like I can't actually figure out where I am. This is strange. What's going on here? I can't see where I am. Um. And I thought, well, I better just push on and I better just find the strength to push on. But I was really starting to feel a bit faltering a bit. And then I fell into a wee ruscello, a wee burn, a tiny little burn, like a ditch, a runoff ditch. But it was quite far under the snow. So then I'm up to my shoulders and I'm like, oh, shit, now my feet are wet. Oh, no. And icy cold, like really icy cold. But at least I know where I am because now I'm on the other side of the wee ditch. And now I can go follow the ditch down and I, I know where I am now. I've strayed away to the to the top uphill and when I should have been down below and managed to get to the, the path, which wasn't really a path. It was really snowing now. Um, but I managed to get down to the bit underneath the rhododendron trees where it was more uh, warm and sheltered, where the, the wind wasn't blowing and the snow had melted because it was under the trees. So I got there and eventually clambered my way down shaking and freezing down to the main road and still hadn't found granny was really concerned that she possibly would be under under some snow or something somewhere I got to the main road the main road's all melted by the cars passing and uh, trotted along there in the slushy the slushy snow Ugh, so cold and of course shivering and shaking but I tried to tried to pick up my speed to keep my body temperature up eventually got up the main track I got to the house. My mum absolutely frantic. I think it was probably dark by now. And I'm frantic about, what the hell, where the hell were you? Granny arrived here ages ago. And I, oh, thank God for that. I thought Granny was dead in a, under a snowdrift. Um, and of course, she'd come along the main road and up the, the track. And she'd got got there not long after I'd left. And I'd been away for about an hour and a half. It's something that should have been a 10-minute walk down and a 10-minute walk up. And... Um, yeah, all all's well that ended well. Probably got chillblains on my feet then, putting them in the in the oven. Um, but yeah, just I love this. I love that memory because there was something about it that um, there was a point there when I I was really small. I would have been about five or six, and there's just no way somebody would let their child go out in a snowstorm nowadays at that age. But the gift of having been allowed to expose myself to that and being challenged, you know, very possibly with life and death, that's not, that's not a bad thing. It's not punishment. It's not a, it's not neglect even. Like that is a, a profound strengthening of my whole system that happened because I faced a point where I could have given up and I could have just thought actually I, I don't really don't want to do this I can't I can't do it there's a, a very specific thing that snapped there like the laziness snapped <laughs> the the want to just turn around and go back because I couldn't turn around and go back it was just as hard to go back as it was to go forward the fact of being that exposed, that that profoundly exposed to the elements and having to having to find the strength. I, I felt like I didn't have the strength and I was scared and I was starting to feel really cold and vulnerable and I thought, oh shit, if I 
if I go stay here, I'm going to get covered in snow and they're not going to find me. So I really, I have to, unless I want to die, I have to keep going here. Um, and that, you know, having pain in my feet from the cold and the wet and being so sure I was going to bump into granny at any point. So I didn't really think I was in danger. I didn't really think it was danger. And of course, I was very close to home, ultimately. And for an adult to get to me, it would have been, it wouldn't have taken that long if I was on the path. But um, yeah, my tracks were certainly covered up quickly by the, the tempest and the the way forward seemed to be getting more and more difficult. But the, yeah, not, not to dwell on like the martyrdom of it all, but there is something so important about having been exposed and having come up trumps with it and having been able to push through that, that if we never get challenged about anything, if we're just kept warm and safe and driven about in a car and breathing inside air through air conditioners and so on, we're just not going to have an immune system and we're not going to have the strength of spirit and will to know that when you push through the challenge, you will gain amazing strength at the end of it you'll also know what's dangerous about a tempest uh, uh, a storm a snowstorm you'll know more about that rather than just assuming that even a drizzly rain is dangerous and one shouldn't go outside one should just shut down and stay inside <laughs> so yeah the last story i was telling was about the village hall and the nativity play and <laughs> oh bless um when i started primary school at four or five years old uh, we we were it was quite a big school i had about 45 kids in it and there were two three classrooms they had they had had to build a, a whole new classroom uh, an external classroom for the big ones <laughs> um but the big old stand, sandstone building had two classrooms uh, and eventually when I left primary school to go to high school um, there was a, a distinct change in the the amount of kids in the school and we had about 12 when I left and six when my wee sister started um, lots of discussions over the years about closing it down but even when there was just 12 of us and we were all in the one classroom and we did a tiny wee nativity play. Ah, oh, it was just, it was really wonderful. I love how, like whether we did it in the school and had um, all the wee kids' chairs laid out for the adults to sit on, whether we did it in the school or the village hall, it was just this magical um, mishmash of, because we were we were young and older kids, it was very, um, very organic, shall we say, uh, telling the story of Mary and Joseph travelling across, following the star and the three kings and the stable, the birth of Jesus and so on. And the wee songs we sang, oh, it was just so beautiful. But I distinctly remember um, there almost always being some sort of comedy element to it, even though it was this thing that was so somber and serious that the teacher was trying to get us to do the perfect nativity play you know there's such a a thing about teachers um trying to condition the kids to just do 
something that they're being directed to do and, and make it really perfect so that it shows them that they're really good teachers because they've conditioned the kids really well and got them all to behave. And we were this bunch of... <clears throat> I mean, we looked at like something out of an 80s film. Really funny, quirky little kids with all of our hair all over the place. I think the teacher used to brush it on it on the days that we had to get a school photo done. And we all had hand-knitted jumpers or little tatty 1970s jackets with stripes on or whatever. Wellies, just wellies, summer and winter, probably. <laughs> and little corduroy jeans or whatever. Um, and getting us into costumes and getting us to like directing us in a play, a nativity play was just, I can't even imagine. It would be like trying to tame a herd of wildebeest or something. And I, I remember the comedy element being that something really funny would always happen. <clears throat> kind of like children's plays all over the world, I'm sure that, that this happens. But just with the added spontaneity of feral, wild children <laughs> who are used to you know, if they're doing something um, collectively, they're crashing about outside or building things or playing with stones and piling up stones or splashing about in waves or pushing each other in the burn or something. But all being all cleaned up and put in costumes and put on a stage is just like they're just the absolute antithesis of what we were designed for. And um, I remember... I remember many times, like, all audience participation. <laughs> there wasn't meant to be audience participation, but I remember, like, howls of laughter and and us kind of feeling like, oh, wait a minute, isn't this meant to be really serious? Like, the teacher made it seem really serious and we've got to look a certain way and we've got to look the, make the, rock the baby and da-da-da-da-da. <clears throat> look like a really caring mother. I was playing Mother Mary a lot of the time, I seem to remember. And, um... Yeah, I remember at least one time dropped the baby on its head and picked it up by the leg and, you know, <laughs> um, got a really good a good round of applause from the audience for that. <laughs> but yeah, the beauty of the village hall where the whole village came out to support the kids or to watch the kids and then afterwards there would be a big supper, a big dinner um, with just such a wealth of good old-fashioned puddings and meat and potatoes and you know tatties and brussels sprouts and neeps and probably haggis and all sorts of good stuff um winter greens fish maybe things in vinegar fish and vinegar uh, roll mop herrings scandinavian stuff um but mostly the cakes the cakes oh my goodness uh Back in the day, all the, all the old ladies in the village, or older ladies, you know, probably not that much older than me now, <laughs> would bring along trays and trays of home baking. It would be just such a, a thing that there would be the meal, but then there would be cake, 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 cake for a, a good while afterwards. And lots of fizzy pop and excess, and then there would be dancing. I don't know if we had all these things at the one party. I think we probably had a series of parties and some years were different, but I seem to remember them all like being at all the same time and there being a big Kaylee afterwards. And the big Kaylee dance would be um, like mixed with a disco and there would be disco and pop music, but then there would be the Kaylee dance as well. So we would have traditional traditional dancing mixed in with Kaylee, uh, with um, pop music and disco dancing. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. <clears throat> 
but yeah, the the thing about um, the beauty of the village hall. Uh, I remember years later, my friends in Edinburgh who came from the city, uh, they came down to Arran uh, with me for Christmas or Hugmany New Year, uh, the last day of the year. And there's always a really big party in the village hall. And it was a really wild, fun party. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and the, um, they were really amazed about how everybody was so friendly and it was such fun and the dancing and the the traditional dancing um, and they were they were really immersed in it and then they, at the end of the night they're like oh shit someone's lost a really expensive camera oh no I was like oh don't worry we'll get it we'll, some, it'll just be where you've left it they're like no 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 but it's a really expensive camera you know someone's obviously picked it up and whatever they're like no really you'll find it tomorrow it'll be fine you know so, <laughs> so we turned up the next morning all hungover and still brillo still half tiddly and all all dazed and confused and we we got up as early as we possibly could and came down and we're we're asking if there'd been a camera found and like oh i don't know go and look at all there's all the jackets that have been left over there and it was sitting in the exact same place they left it just under a jacket on a chair we're like fab that's good <laughs> um but they were really surprised by that and about how you know they've been conditioned in the city to to presume that if something is left, it will be stolen. And and yeah, it's not a guaranteed thing that if you left a camera out on a bench in the in the middle of the village that someone would steal it. But it's, I mean, I know that if I found a camera in the village, I, I wouldn't steal it. I would think, oh God, someone's going to be absolutely sick to their stomach. Uh, having lost their camera, I'll go and hand it into the shop or the hotel or whatever, and they'll find it there, you know. And I'll put a wee note in the chair on the seat or something saying, I found your camera, it's over there. Or leave my number or something. So anyway, just the, the presumption that of human nature being something not not warm, something competitive and uncaring, I love that the village hall just uh, disproves that fantastically in practical in practical ways that um, the kind of parties we had, the kind of celebrations, everybody was there, everybody, the whole village was there. And there was nobody excluded. It wasn't all teenagers. It wasn't all 20-year-olds. It wasn't all older people. It was everyone together. And there's something that's really alchemical about everybody coming together. Or at least there was then where... I think the dancing too, like it's such a particular kind of dancing. The traditional Scottish country dancing, as it's called, that... We get taught from a young age and the, again the, the dances are probably very contrived compared to what they used to be but the general ethos of the dancing is warm yourself up hold hands embrace each other um, partner with people that you wouldn't usually partner with you might end up dancing a, a really small child with a really old person or you're, you might end up dancing with your enemy or your neighbor who you don't get on with but the beauty was you'd feel the warmth of their hand you'd be linking arms with them you'd be forced to connect with them in this physical warming way that you wouldn't be able to hate them anymore it wouldn't be possible it would just be a ridiculous concept you're holding hands with this person and you feel the warmth of their hand you see their vitality you see them laughing and smiling and like how could you not love someone else <laughs> when when that's happening um and you're all crashing down on the chairs, exhausted, with 
big red faces and <laughs> sweating, throwing off the layers. Uh, what could you not be absolutely um, in love with everybody in your community from that? How could you not? Um, and there, there's such a powerful vitality of that, the heat, the hearth, the heart of the community dancing together and nobody getting to sit down and sit it out, you know, everyone having to dance, everyone being involved, uh, even if there were always enough people who knew the dances that whoever didn't know the dance, you know, an English visitor or somebody, somebody's relative who's come to stay or friends from the city, if they didn't know the dances, they'd be talked through them and they'd be supported or they would just get pulled along, you know, just like, come on, this way, <laughs> turn around and the whole, the whole group would push them in the right direction and they would, they would figure it out. They, they wouldn't quite get the paddy bars and the, the um, oh, I don't know what the steps are, but just the, the step, the one, two, three, one, two, three step that when you're dancing around the, the shape of the block. So, yeah, dancing was a really special part, especially the, the really fast ones like the Gay Gordons or, or whatever, or the, the Something Something March. I don't really remember the names of the dances, but I know them so intimately. I learned them from very young at school and school dances and being teenagers and dancing with the boy you fancied or were in love with and um, oh the joy of that and the practices and that we'd get taken out of regular class at high school and um, taken you know like missing English class or German class uh, or something really boring like history to go to the gym and do very essential dance practice you know we have to have dance practice because we have to be able to dance the traditional dances for the festival or for some party or for just for Christmas you know like we had to know how to do the traditional dances for Christmas and hug money and new year and so on so <laughs> it was like the priority much more important than learning about history or science so yeah I love that aspect of the of the the core the core, the heart of the community in the village hall, the wildness of the dancing. And I remember we always had a, a big bonfire outside too. We do bonfires kind of all times of the year, but uh, Guy Fox night was a you know anglified political thing. But then there was um the more primal ancient things were are pretty much like just make a fire at any point, you know, having a fire outside is is a, a powerful symbol of bringing the inside out and then you know having a tree inside is bringing the outside in bringing nature inside they're all powerful symbols and then um, we had the village hall and there was a wee field next to the village hall across the burn the other side of the burn from the from the village hall and there would just be like an immense fire there and there was such a beauty of um you know the wild bright lights, heaters on, folk louping about in joy and, and festivities and dancing and dancing and then sitting down and eating and eating and dancing and dancing. And then um, and then the lights going down and doing a bit of disco dancing and then the lights going up and doing uh, country dancing again, <laughs> traditional dancing again. And then when you got too hot, which would happen quite a lot, you could go outside into the cool of the air and then you could go and stand and get roasted on one side by the fire. If you wanted a wee quiet moment, you wanted a wee elemental moment, go and sit outside by the fire and um, just get in a quiet space and folk would chat around the big bonfire and 
warm up your front, warm up your back. It kind of it was always hard to not just be burned on one side and freezing cold on the other side, <laughs> but somehow we would manage. And um, gosh, yeah, bonfires in the rain, bonfires in the snow, flinging petrol on to get things started. Oh my goodness, yeah, yeah, the fun, the fun of the elements and the and the improvisation and the the drunken party organizers and everybody involved. Um, so powerful, big alchemical soup in which everyone's cheered. Everyone feels that they're not alone. Everyone feels revived and warmed through to their bones and reminded that they're all one. We're all connected. We're all one. That we're not out on our own, you know, go back to our wee cottages and the damp and the cold and the fire's gone down and like, oh get the hot water bottles on. Thank God we've got electricity in the modern day. <laughs> yeah, it's quite um quite a quite a, a thing to remember like what that what the tra traditions were, like the traditions yeah, the tree tradition that came from Norway, wasn't it? Whatever, but I don't know that it did. I, I think we always brought branches inside the tree and putting lights on a tree or one thing, a bit more of a modernised version of it, but we always brought wreaths and logs and we had candles on them and light and we always brought something from outside in, holly branches um, for protection and magic and uh, pine for the smells, the freshening the house in the winter, cleaning the energy in the house when everyone's more inside than out. Ah, the beauty of, the beauty and and simplicity of what was handed down, what became our, our tradition as children and what, what, what we were immersed in inside and out as children. Um, yeah, very interesting that I, as an adult, uh, now I, I've really shunned the, the commercial aspects. I, I love gift giving, but I don't want to, I don't want to res reserve gift giving to one day of the year because everybody else is getting gifts. And it seems, it seems really superfluous to give gifts when people are getting so many gifts from many directions. It's like, it's too many gifts. <laughs> And really the gifts, the only gifts that we really need and we need to appreciate are our warmth and community and health and movement and heart and love, presence in the winter and having enough is like there can't be a better gift than that. And I, I don't mean to be cheesy and hallmark about that, but I, I do feel that if we can't, if we can't deeply appreciate the simplicity of what's already around us and the luxury of a warm fire, of a warm bed, and even if it's not a warm bedroom, if there's ice on the windows, if we can't appreciate the beauty of cold, the beauty and magic and alchemy of the cold, of the snow and the ice and the, the magic of all things, then then we're missing that we are enriched. We're missing that we're profoundly, profoundly taken care of and safe in the world. And um, with everything that's going on right now, I think it's very important to remember that.
I think it's very important above all to remember that we're we have inalienable rights to connect, warm each other up, hug each other, hold hands, um, and to expose ourselves to outside to each other, to the elements. Um, nobody can lock us in our house ever, even though we've probably younger folk in the world have probably been conditioned to think that they should be locked in the house that it's safer in the house and it's better um, I'd, I think it's time we all start going outside more in the winter and exposing ourselves to the elements and really feeling I have to say I've had a few moments this winter already where I've just felt this where before I would have been hunching my shoulders and turning my face away from the wind I'm holding my face up to the rain and the and the wind and holding my bare hands out and facing it and feeling wonderful, just feeling wonderful, so connected and so like something is being transmitted to me through the elements and that's that's an enrichment um, the enrichment was always there but I, I didn't want to expose myself to it before and that's an interesting, an interesting change, eh? So I wish you love, I wish you well, I wish you blessings in this midwinter, warmth and cheer and joy and community, nourishment, health, health, wealth and happiness. I can hear folk out the front of the houses here um, talking loudly and laughing and being a bit performy, so I think that that's the guys come to start organise for this event that we're doing tomorrow. I better go and get organised myself. Much love to you. Um, do come and join me in the live painting sessions if you would like to on Wednesday. We'll be doing two sessions again. Really looking forward to it. Um, I'm sending much love. Much love. Blessings. Ciao.